Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahirabbilalamin wassalatu wassalamu ala asyrafil anbiya'i wal mursalin nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Amma ba'd. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Allahumma anfa'na bima 'allamtana wa 'allimna ma yanfa'una warzuqna 'ilman tanfa'una bih. Amin ya rabbal alamin. Rabbi shrah li sadri wa yassir li amri wahlul 'uqdatam min lisani yafqahu qawli. We're continuing tonight with uh, the fiqh of salah from the book Buluhul Maram I Ibn Hajar Al-Asqalani Rahimahullah and we are currently in the chapter of the shuroot of salah the conditions of salah and we will complete this chapter tonight bi-idhnillahi ta'ala so we're carrying on the first hadith for the evening reads from Muttarif who Muttarif Ibn Abdullah Ibn Shikhir عن أبيه رضي الله عنه قال رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يصلي وفي صدره أزيز كأزيز المرجل من البكاء أخرجه الخمسة إلا ابن ماجه وصحه ابن حبان. so مطرف the son of Abdullah the son of شخير نريد from his father رضي الله عنه that he said that I saw the messenger of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم يصلي مكين صلاة وفي صدره أزيز كأزيز المرجل من البكاء and from his chest he says there was a sound a whistling sound like that of a a kettle that's that's on the you know boiling that's reaching boiling point من البكاء due to his Due to his severe crying in the salah. So, firstly, the author, Rahimahullah, Ibn Hajar, he brings this hadith in this chapter to prove that crying out of the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and even if that crying has يعني, sound that comes out of the person, whether it's from his chest or from Yani whatever the sound may be of extreme crying, then this does not nullify the salah and this is not considered as speaking or uttering words unnecessarily as we spoke about last week. So last week we proved from the ahadith that it's not permissible to speak in the salah. It's not permissible to utter anything in the salah unnecessarily. And the hadith basically said, that salah is only for tasbih and takbir and uh, tahmid and so forth. So speaking in the salah, making sounds in the salah, this is not permissible. But what does this hadith now prove? That there is another exception to this. And that is the sound that comes out of a person, that emanates from a person who is crying sincerely out of fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, out of love for Allah, out of longing for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is not considered as a kalam which is muharram, speaking which is haram or making sounds which is um, haram. So he saw the Prophet making salah and this is whether it was fard sunnah doesn't really matter in this case and وَفِي صَدْرِهِ أَزِيزٌ Aziz is a sound that a pot makes when it reaches boiling point. So, uh, you know, we have these kettles, those whistling kettles. I think this is what the analogy that's being made by the Sahabi. 
right? As it reaches those, that, that point and it starts to whistle that high pitched sound, this is what he saw or what his father narrated to him that he saw upon the Prophet um, as he was making salah. Why? Due to his buka. Buka means to, to cry. So because of his crying, this is the sound that emanated from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa So you can imagine he was been, you know, really um, almost wailing or, or excessively crying such that the sound was coming out or from his chest sallallahu alayhi wa From the benefits of this hadith is we definitely learn and we see the khushu' that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had for his Lord Azza wa Jal. The khushu' the focus, the humility, that surrendering in front of Allah, that concentration in his salah, this is of course how he ended up in this state. It was between him and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he had sincere faith and of course sincere fear for Allah azza wa jal at the same time. And because of this, the salah had a strong effect on him. The Qur'an that he was reciting had a powerful effect on him. Meaning he made salah with his heart present. And he wasn't thinking about anything in this world. He was thinking about Allah. He was thinking about what he was reciting. The dhikrs that he was making in the salah. Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim. These are things that is of utmost importance that we know what they mean, what they stand for. It's very important that we know that when we're in sujood, what are we saying? When we're in ruku' what are we saying? It's not just lip service, it's not just about getting it over, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, Subhana Rabbi Al-Azim, and we come up. Rabbana Al-Kalhamd, Hamdan Kathiran, Tayyiban Barakafi, and we down. You know, this is not actually... This is not doing justice to the salah. This is not doing justice to the salah. We should, you know, at least learn what, what it means. What do these phrases of the salah mean? And bi'ithnillah, as we go through, we'll get to these phrases and we'll explain them. And it's important that we try and understand them and memorize them, insha'Allah. Another benefit of this hadith is that crying does not negate the salah, even if, yani due to that crying, a person... He, he makes some type of wailing sound or some type of high-pitched sound that comes out of him, that comes from him. Uh, this does not negate the Nalifa uh, the Salah as it was done by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Then Ibn Uthaymin brings up an issue and he says, what if a person cries for a different reason? So, of course, if you are making Salah, and let's say the imam is reciting and he breaks down and he's why does he break down because of the ayat that he's reciting because he understands he's standing in front of allah and out of fear for allah out of uh because of the ayat perhaps that, that touches him he cries this is something that of course happened to the salihin the prophet and all the you know the righteous people the quran has an effect on them Quran, it, it, it causes them to weep. And one of the ulama, he said that if you are somebody who cries when you make dua, but you do not cry when you recite the Quran, then he said you should check your heart. He said when you make dua, yes, it's important. Yes, you are speaking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yes, you are asking of Allah. So we end up, we cry because we are sincere. But he says if you recite the Quran, 
and you listen to the Quran and it has no effect on you, or it does not lead you to crying for the sake of Allah, then you should check your heart. Because this is Kalamullah. This is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. If that doesn't cause your heart to, to, to soften, if that doesn't cause your heart to break down in front of Allah and you break down into tears, then there must be something wrong with your heart. لو أنزلنا هذا القرآن على جبل لرأيته خاشعا متصدعا من خشية الله. الله عز وجل said if this Quran was revealed on a mountain you would surely have seen that mountain crumbling and surrendering in front of Allah out of fear for Allah. So if this is the effect that the Quran will have on a mountain what about our hearts? What's the state of our heart if the Qur'an doesn't cause our hearts to surrender? Does this not mean that our hearts are hardened? Our hearts have become hard. And this is why it's not having the effect that it should have. So what's the remedy? The remedy is undoubtedly istighfar. We turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we ask Him for forgiveness. And the remedy is to increase in recitation of Qur'an. To, to increase in Qur'an and turn to the Qur'an even more. And to try and understand the Qur'an such that it will end up having that effect on our hearts. And undoubtedly it will have an effect on the heart. There is nothing more powerful, no speech more eloquent and more powerful than the kalam of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So back to the mas'ala. Ibn Uthaymin says, what if a person cries for a different reason? And he's not crying out of fear for Allah. So for example, um, somebody's parent passed away somebody's brother or sister or loved one passed away and he ends up making salah not long after that and in the salah he thinks about this person or she thinks about this person and what happens they start to cry right they start to cry so the issue here is if you were crying because of the quran because of fear for allah that's that's no problem that's one thing but the other issue is, if you are crying for a different reason, does this then nullify the salah or not? And this is where some ulama said it, it nullifies the salah. Because it's not done for the sake of Allah basically. But Ibn Uthaymin rahimahullah, he says that the correct view is that this crying also does not break the salah. And this is because this person is not doing this purposefully. This is a cry that's natural, it just comes to him. It's not in his ability to just stop. You understand? So because of this, he says, this is not considered as speaking unnecessarily in the salah. And this does not nullify the salah either. Walhamdulillah. Is there any questions on this hadith? The hadith of, which basically mentions that crying in the salah, even if it brings about, you know, foreign sounds to the salah, like the hadith mentions, the Prophet's chest made a whistling sound because of his excessive crying for the sake of Allah or out of the fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This does not break the salah. This is not considered as unnecessary sound or speech in the salah which can nullify the salah. The next hadith is from Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu. He said, كَانَ لِي مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ مدخلان فكنت إذا أتيته وهو يصلي تنحنح 
li rawahu an-nasa'i wa ibn majah ali radhiyallahu ta'ala an again one of the greatest of companions the fourth best of them all the fourth of the khulafa right after abu bakr umar uthman came ali radhiyallahu ta'ala an he was also the cousin of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and also the son in law of rasulullah sallallahu as he was married to the best of the daughters of the prophet sallam fatima radhiyallahu ta'ala anha so ali had a special status without a doubt he had a special status it is said out of the ahlul bayt out of the ahlul bayt then he was the best of them after the prophet sallam Right, him and probably Aisha and his and Fatima, they were all great, no doubt. Hassan and Hussein, but Ali had a greater status because he was of the Khulafa or Rashidin, one of the ten that was guaranteed Jannah, the cousin of the Prophet, one of the first to accept Islam, and also the son in law, the one who married uh, Fatima. So he said, Kana li madkhalan. When I wanted to visit the Prophet, I had two moments that I would always visit him basically Mad- a madkhal is actually a, an entry point so this door is a madkhal into this house understand he says I had two entry points to the Prophet so what this could mean is a few things this could mean that I, I entered from two places of his house that went to visit him or it means that there was two times during the day that I would visit him understand and Ibn Uthaymi says this makes more sense that there was two moments during the day that he would visit. One in the morning or during the day and one at night. When he would visit the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallama. So he said, فَكُنْتُ إِذَا أَتَيْتُهُ وَهُوَ يُصَلِّي تَنَحْنَحَ لِي When I came to him and I visited him and he was making salah. At times I would come and he would be making salah. Sunnah salah of course. Right? تَنَحْنَحَ لِي He would make a sound indicating to me to pay attention yani that I am that he is making salah so what this hadith doesn't mention is that فَاسْتَأْذَنْ yani Ali actually when he would come in he would seek permission he would just walk into the house they would seek permission you understand and the Prophet would then indicate to him that he is making salah he would then indicate to him that he is making salah. Tanahnaha li, he said. Tanahnaha is when you make a sound with your, with your throat. So you indicate to somebody a sound with your, with your throat. So it could be without any words being uttered, like, <coughs> or you understand? Or it could mean just indicating with, with, with very few words or just one or two words to indicate that um, I'm in salah. Understand? So, what does this hadith prove? What's the benefits of this hadith? Firstly, the hadith proves the virtue of Ali radiallahu anhu that he had two of, two times during each day that he would, you know, make specifically for the Prophet or that the Prophet knew he would come to him twice a day, you know, morning and evening. This was something specific to him. So, this is a, a, a virtue of Ali of the many virtues that he has radiallahu anhu. Secondly, the Prophet used to make salah at home. The hadith proves that he used to make salah in his home. But this is not regarding the, the faridah. This is, ex, this is excluding the, 
the five salahs. As it says in the hadith, أَفْضَلُ صَلَاةِ الْمَرْءِ فِي بَيْتِهِ إِلَّا الْمَكْتُوبَةِ The Prophet said in the hadith, the best salah of a person is the salah that he makes in his home, except for the maktubah, which is the obligatory prayer. So the best salah that you can make then is what? It's the salah that you make in the masjid, right? The fard salah that you make in the masjid is the best salah. But the sunnah salah is best prayed where? At home. Any sunnah salah, it's best to pray it at home, while the fard should be prayed in the masjid. And this of course applies to rijal. This is a rule that applies to men and not to women, right? The woman, there are other hadith that speaks about that, but the ruling on women is, it's permissible for them to pray in the masjid, no issues. But the best place for them to make salah is at home. They get more reward for making salah at home. This applies for fard and sunnah. This applies for fard and sunnah. Understand? But this hadith here mentions that the best salah of a man is what he makes at home, excluding the, but not including the, the fard salah. So the Prophet would of course pray the fard in the masjid and go home and pray the sunnahs. Or before the fard, he would pray his sunnah and then go to the masjid and pray the fard and so forth. And there's a lot of wisdom in this. Um, one example is it keeps the house alive with the remembrance of Allah, with salah. Understand, if the males make all the salah in the masjid, they may not be making salah at home at all. And you want to bring that nur into the home as well. So this doesn't mean you pray the fard at home sometimes. The best way to do it and the way you're supposed to do it is pray the fard in the masjid and the sunnahs at home. And this is how Rasulullah taught us, he encouraged us, and this is what he did as well. So from the hadith we learn that he definitely played at home as well. Ali would come to him and he would be in salah. Thirdly, it proves that nahnaha is permissible when you are trying to indicate to somebody or, you know, get somebody to pay attention to something. That, for example, you are in salah, right? That you are in salah. This is something that the Prophet ﷺ did. So, even though he was in the salah and this person wanted to enter, you can then... Um, indicate to him somehow that you are in prayer. So that doesn't have to be by, you know, making the throaty sound. Like <clears throat> it could also be that you maybe recite louder. Or when you make takbir, you say it louder. Before you go into ruku, you say Allah Akbar, but you say it a bit louder or longer. You understand? So that the person can hear and understand, look, this person is actually making salah. This is permissible. Even though you are doing it in the salah to get somebody else's attention, this is permissible. This is what this hadith um, teaches us over here. The hadith also proves that speaking in the salah is forbidden. Because the Prophet, if it was permissible, he could have just said to Ali, I'm making salah, just hang on. Instead, he resorted to nahnaha, which as we said is some type of sound that comes from the, from the throat. Some type of sound that comes from the throat. So without a doubt, this is uh, permissible. And speaking in the salah is not permissible, as we proved last week as well. Um, the next hadith from Ibn Umar, radiallahu anhumah, that he said, قُلْتُ لِبِلَالٍ كَيْفَ رَأَيْتَ النَّبِيَّ صَلَى سَلَمَ يَرُدُّ عَلَيْهِمْ حِينَ يُسَلِّمُونَ عَلَيْهِ وَهُوَ يُصَلِّي قَالَ يَقُولُ هَكَذَا وَبَسَطَ كَفَّهُ أَخْرَجَهُ أَبُدَاوَ وَتِرْمِذِي وَحْصَحَهُ Ibn Umar, 
the son of Umar ibn Khattab. So his name was Abdullah ibn Umar. Abdullah, the son of Umar. Right? He was one of the most knowledgeable of Sahaba. Abdullah ibn Umar was one of the most knowledgeable of the Sahaba and one of the most righteous of Sahaba. He was known for worship. That he was somebody that was always engaged in worship. And he was of the Sahaba who were the most strict when it came to following the Sunnah and sticking to the Sunnah and following and imitating the Prophet Right? And there's many examples of this. He would do things that's not even necessarily considered a Sunnah. So for example, Abdullah ibn Umar would be seen riding on his horse and he would bend down all of a sudden on a certain location and then he would, you know, sit up straight again and continue riding. And when he was questioned about this, he said, when some time back I saw the Prophet riding on the same path and there were some trees hanging over the end of the path and he had to bend down to get under the tree. So when I rode, even though the tree is now cut down or been trimmed, I still bend down on that spot because I saw the Prophet doing this. Now this is not even an act, a sunnah that we have to follow. This was just happened naturally. But he was so firm and strict upon himself, whatever he saw the messenger do, he would make sure that he done that. This was the nature of Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah. So he basically narrates and he says that I said to who? I said to Bilal. Bilal radiallahu anhu was the muaddin of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I said to him, how did the Prophet sallam, or how did you see the Prophet sallam responding to salam? To the salam, the greeting, when it was sent upon him whilst he was making salah. So did you ever see the Prophet making salah and somebody greeting him? How did he respond to the greeting was the question of Abdullah ibn, uh, ibn Umar. And take note of this. This is Abdullah ibn Umar who is more knowledgeable. Who is of a higher status than Bilal. Asking Bilal who has less, less knowledge. You understand? Asking him a question. And this is the, the, the humility of, of, of the Sahaba. Um, so in the early days... In the early days, there's a hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud which proves that they would greet the Prophet and he would respond in salah. So they greeted him and he would say, Wa alaikum salam, and continue with the, with the salah. But this was then abrogated later on and he would then uh, stop himself from responding to the greeting. So Abdullah ibn Umar asked Bilal, what did he then do when people greeted him? So he did not respond anymore. What did he then do when people would uh, greet him and then he gave the answer by saying he would basically um, you know indicate with his hand you know like basically point with his hand to say I acknowledge your greeting but I'm not allowed in the salah to respond to the greeting any longer but he would basically just indicate with his hand to say that I've heard the greeting and this is kind of my response to to your greeting yeah, like uh, it's like just lifting up the hand, you know, uh, quickly. Something like that. It's something simple. Are you with me? So it's not necessarily a wave, right? Just lifting up the hand to indicate that I've heard your greeting and that's it. Understand? Um, benefits of this hadith, Ibn Uthaymin mentions firstly that 
we find sometimes a learned person may not know something that somebody of a lesser status will, will know, that, might, that he might know. And this is very common. Sometimes we think, look, that person's a sheikh. He must know, you know, everything. Or he must know most things. Huh? But sometimes you find that the sheikh doesn't know something that someone much younger, who's not as knowledgeable, might know. This is, something that, this is just the nature of knowledge, of seeking knowledge. Sometimes you miss something. No matter how many years you study, you miss something. You understand? And this is a lesson that Ibn Uthaymin pulls out of this hadith. Because we have Ibn Umar who's known for knowledge. Known to be someone who, who knew a lot. He narrated, is it the second most hadith? Abu Huraira narrates the most hadith. And then, Abdullah ibn Umar, number two. This, the one who narrated the second most hadith on the Prophet was who? Abdullah ibn, ibn Umar. So he was known for knowledge and ilm. But yet in this case, he went to ask Bilal, who was not known, not to say he was ignorant, but he wasn't known to be of the, the most knowledgeable of the Sahaba. But he knew the answer. So sometimes you'll find this in, with, with us as well, that sometimes a, a sheikh may not know, whereas somebody else might know. He learned it somewhere, he read it somewhere, he heard it somewhere in a lecture, or so forth. Right? Um, and the other benefit he mentions is how, you know, Sincere the Sahaba were, and how firm they were when it came to seeking knowledge. Here's Abdullah ibn Umar, full of knowledge, going to somebody else and asking him, What did the Prophet do? Huh? If he wanted to know something, they would go ask. They didn't just sit back and wonder. So perhaps this, a thought came to him and think, I wonder what the Prophet did in this. Let's go ask somebody. Let's go learn. This is how the Sahaba were, and this is why they were the best of nations. Um, thirdly, the third benefit he brings is that it's permissible for somebody to greet somebody in the salah. It's permissible for somebody to greet a person that is making salah. Because the Prophet allowed this. And when people would make, greet him, he never went to them and said, don't greet the person in salah. You understand? So he kind of tacitly approved of it by responding by raising his hand. Which means that he allowed it, and he didn't go to them and say, uh, you should not do that. Because if it was haram, he would have went to them and said, and made it very clear, or given a public khutbah, or a statement to say, if a person is making salah, you're not allowed to greet them. Understand? But this was never done, which means he tacitly approved of it, meaning that it is permissible. It is permissible. So it's permissible. But is it recommended? Is it just permissible? Is it just okay? Some even went and said that it is makruh, it's disliked. It is disliked. Right? So some said, look, it's a sunnah. It's mustahab, it's recommended. Because people used to do it in the time of the Prophet Other ulama said, no, it's not a sunnah. It's makruh. Because you are disturbing the person making salah. And he might be in salah, and he might not have knowledge, and he might respond. Or he might forget and he might respond. So it's not like, it's, it's disliked. The view Ibn Uthaymin says is the most correct is that it's just permissible. We don't say you should do it, it's recommended, it's a sunnah. Because the person's in salah. At the same time, we don't say it's makruh or haram because the Prophet allowed it. If he allowed it, it cannot be makruh. Understand? He would have indicated to say that it should not be done. 
and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So we say we don't encourage people to greet those who are in the salah. If you see somebody in the salah, refrain from greeting them, right? Wait till they're done with the salah and then you greet. If you did greet, there's no sin upon you and Allah knows best. Um, as for the response of the person in the salah, then we know that from this hadith it's permissible to ishar, yani to do ishara, which means to to basically lift up the hand and indicate and signal with the hand that you have heard the greeting, you acknowledge the greeting, and that's it. So is this sufficient or should you add on to this? Right? What we say is you should not respond in the salah. Right? But if you are close to the end of the salah and you finish the salah and you see the person who greeted you, you should then go and greet them back. Understand? Out of courtesy. If you did just wave, that is sufficient inshallah. But if you can go after the salah and greet them, then this is something good out of common courtesy. And Allah knows best. Any questions on this hadith? Right, so one more point on this is that if you signal um, it doesn't have to be with the hand. You can even signal with your head. Or you know, with something in some way just to indicate that you've heard the greeting and you acknowledge the greeting. If it was done with the head or the hand or, you know, but the point is it shouldn't be excessive movements. It should not be excessive movements and Allah knows best. The next hadith from Abu Qatada radiallahu anhu that he said كَانَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمَ يُصَلِّي وَهُوَ حَامِلٌ أُمَامَةَ بِنْتِ زَيْنَبٍ وَبِنْتَ زَيْنَبٍ فَإِذَا سَجَدَ وَضَعَهَا وَإِذَا قَامَ حَمَدَهَا مُتَّفَقٌ عَلَيْهِ Abu Qatada narrates that the Prophet ﷺ used to make salah and he would be carrying Umamah, the daughter of Zainab. When he made sujood, he would put her down. When he stood up, he would pick her up again. Bukhari and Muslim. The version in Muslim also says, nasa fil masjidi. He did this while he was leading the people in salah in the masjid. So, Umamah is the daughter of Zainab, right? Which means she is the granddaughter of the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Her father was Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi' radiallahu anhu. Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi' radiallahu anhu. What happened was is, he was initially a non-Muslim, right? And um, when Zainab, you know, or initially he was a non-Muslim, and when Zainab accepted Islam, this was before, uh, yani they were both, when she accepted Islam before him. So what happens is in that case, they obviously have to separate because he is a non-Muslim and she is a, a Muslim. Um, and after about six years later, he accepted Islam and the Prophet basically returned Zainab back to uh, Abu al-As ibn al-Rabi'. And then obviously the whole mas'ala that comes up over here, 
if a, a man or if a woman accepts Islam before a man, how does the whole you know marriage work? Obviously, they have to separate. If her idda period, if he takes her back or she becomes Muslim in the idda period, they automatically go back together. If the idda period expires, then that contract is of course over. Um, but if he accepts Islam later on, he can just take her back, no problem, and Allah knows best, like in the case with, with Zainab. So, Zainab radiallahu anha, she passed away during the life of the Prophet As we know, all of the Prophet's children passed away in his lifetime, except for Fatima radiallahu anha. So she passed away, and she had this young daughter, Umama. And the Prophet ﷺ used to look after her, carry her around and so forth, especially when her mother became ill and of, of course after she passed away. And this was of course part and parcel of the perfect character of Rasulullah that he would be someone who served his family in, in, in many ways. Right? There are many ways that he served his family. Besides working and bringing in you know, money and income and, and sustaining the family, he worked in the home, he would clean the house, he would mend his own clothing, he would stitch up his own clothing. And like this he would look after the children and so forth. Uh, this is part and parcel of his sunnah as well, that you serve your family, that you make things easy for your family. And not, you know, just to walk in and expect things and uh, keep things on demand at all times. It's not actually the way the Prophet was. He also contributed in cleaning the house and looking after the kids and in doing this and it wasn't all on the on the female like in certain cultures this is how people love it's all on the female she must look after every single thing the food must be ready at this time the tea must be ready at that time there must be cake there must be you know so many dishes must be made um the children must be looked after and the house must be kept clean and everything must be done while the, the husband does absolutely nothing this is in certain cultures you find this but this is not exactly from the sunnah of the Prophet This was not the way he was with his family. Right? As Allah said in Surah Qalam, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ That you certainly are of a high, great status in terms of your khuluq, in terms of your akhlaq, your character. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said about, about him. Um, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you know, if you show mercy to others, then Allah will show mercy to you. The, the one who is in the heavens will show mercy to you. And this applies first and foremost with your family and those who are close to you and around you. And of course with children. They, they, this is what they need. They need that affection and they need that rahmah. They need that compassionateness that you show them. And Allah SWT will show this back to you as what the hadith says. So in the salah, you would carry her. Right? And when he made sujood or ruku' he would place her down on the ground and when he stood up, he would pick her up once again, right? And the hadith in Muslim says, he did this while he was leading the salah in the masjid. So as the imam of the masjid, he did this. And this shows you the importance that he gave to this child. It was, I mean, if, I, don't think, I don't think I've ever seen an imam of a masjid do this, right? I don't think I've ever seen an imam of a masjid do this. Naturally, if you're leading the salah and a child comes to you or your own child comes to you, you tend to push them and say, hey, look, uh, you know, sit at the back now, sit on the side now, you know. 
When Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam carried her in the salah, while he was leading the salah, and that shows you the love that he had for her, and the compassion that he had, and the patience that he had for the child. That whole jamaat had to basically, you know, wait. Like the example of Hassan and Hussein, when his two grandsons came, and he was in salah in sujood, and he lengthened the sujood. He stayed in sujood for a long time. One of the Sahaba at the back, he actually lifted his head to check what's happening. Because he was so long in sujood, he checked to see, is the Prophet okay? What's, what's happening? What's he doing? Is he actually in sujood? And when he looked, what did he see? He saw Hassan al Hussein playing on the back of the Prophet. And again, this is natural. You're going to sujood, and there's a child there who's a toddler. They're going to jump on you and, you know, sit on your back and pull on your clothing and this is what they do. So this is what Hassan and Hussain did. At the end of the salah, somebody asked him also and said, Ya Rasulullah, your sujood was so long. You know, at that one sujood was so long. And he said, I waited for them to finish. I wanted them to finish. Play finish. And then I carried on. And this was, you know, a special love that he had for his grandchildren and a special mercy that he had towards the children, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Um, so definitely from the hadith we learn about the character of the Prophet sallam. And secondly, how compassionate and easy he was with the, with, 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 with the children. And that is permissible to make certain movements in the salah. It's permissible to make certain movements in the salah. Because for him to do this, carrying her, putting her down, lifting her up, is technically it's unnecessary movements, right? It's not part of the salah. Okay, so these are certain movements that is permissible, and there are certain movements that's not. In fact, there are five types of movement when it comes to salah. We have five rulings in the Sharia, wajib, sunnah, mubah, permissible, then we have makru, and we have haram. Five rulings. When it comes to movement in salah, it can fall into any one of those five rulings. Right? So, for example, a movement that is wajib. Sometimes it's wajib for you to make, to, to move in the salah, to do. When we say move, it means not the normal actions of the salah. It means an, a, a, an additional movement. So, for example, um, you're making salah and you're facing the wrong direction. You're not facing the qibla. What happens is, as you are making salah to that way, somebody comes in and says, hey, the qibla is that way. Right? In the salah, it's now fard upon you to, to turn and face the direction that they are telling you to face. Understand? It's now wajib for you to do that additional movement. And there's an, it's even hadith about this. Sahaba were praying in Masjid Quba, and they were facing Jerusalem, Masjid Al-Aqsa. And people came in and saw this and said, Hey, the Quran came down and said to the Prophet, you must now face Makkah. They changed direction in that masjid and they face Makkah. Understand? This is something that needs to be done. You're facing the wrong way. Also, for example, a person who's making salah and he sees some najis on his clothing. He needs to get up, change his clothing, come back and repeat the salah. This is a, a movement that becomes wajib upon him. Secondly, there are some movements that is permissible or, or rather that is mustahab 
It's a sunnah, it's recommended to do. Right? For example, if you are making salah and you see a gap in front of you, it's mustahab for you to take a step forward, move forward and fill up the saf. Or somebody to your right moves, you need to also move. So that additional movement is actually recommended. It's a sunnah, you get a reward for that movement, even though it's not part of the usual normal movements of the, of the salah. Understand? Another example is if you're making in jama'ah, let's say there's two of you making salah next to each other, and a third person comes, and he joins. Either the imam walks to the front, or the second person moves to the back, to stand with the next person, the third person, and understand, with the imam being in front. In this case, that's additional movements, that is mustahab. It's recommended for these movements, because it leads to the perfection of the salah. The wajib movements leads to the the, basically, it's, 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 it's to make sure that the salah is acceptable. If you don't do that movement, your salah will be batil. You understand? The sunnah movement is to make sure that it, it's basically it leads to the perfection of the salah, the completeness of the salah. The wajib movement is to make sure your salah stays valid. If you didn't move, it could be invalid. Like the najis on the thawb, or facing the wrong direction. If you don't move, your salah can be invalid because you now know you're facing the wrong um, Direction. A movement that is permissible. It's permissible. We don't say it's fart. We don't say that it is sunnah. It's just permissible. An example of this is slight movements like itching. If you have a slight itch and you scratch, huh, or you just rub somewhere where it's itching, this is permissible. Right? There's no problem in this. Right? Um, somebody, the example he gives is a dog comes in the masjid and you need to maybe push the dog away or protect yourself against the dog. This is something permissible. Right? And so forth. There are, uh, these is basic movements that's allowed for a person. You know? And uh, it's basic movements that's very, very, very slight, very, very, you know, not extreme. This is permissible for a person. Movements that is makruh, to move around in the salah can be disliked, meaning it does not nullify the salah, there's no necessarily, it's no sin in it, but it's not part of the proper etiquette of salah, so it's something that is disliked. For example, a person stands and he's making salah, what does he do? He makes his scarf right, right? Like you see in the Arabs, this is something common. They make salah with the, you know, with the, with the Saudi-style scarf, for example. What happens is when they come up, they first adjust the scarf, make it straight, then they stand. They go into the cool and subdue, the scarf moves. They come back up, what they do? They straighten it up, right, and then they carry on. Another example is some people, they, they pull up their pants all the time. So they're not dressed maybe appropriately for the salah, so they keep on pulling up the pants, keep on... This is unnecessary movements that should not be, do, should not be done in the salah. Because movement is against khushur. Khushur is when you're standing still, you are fully focused, you're fully concentrated on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, on what's being recited, what you are reciting, what the Imam is reciting. But a person who's moving and fidgeting all the time, unnecessarily, he's playing with his, you know, his fez, uh, then it's his glasses, and then it's this, and then it's that. He's fidgeting. This is a sign that he's not focused. 
There's no khushu' there. There's no proper humility in that salah. Understand? So this is movements that is makruh. It takes away from the reward of the salah. It takes away from the completion of the salah, from the perfection of the salah. Right? But it doesn't break the salah. So there's no need for you to, to you know, to, fitter, to, to, to fidget like that, to, to keep on moving. There's no need. If you scratch, there's a need. Right? If you have an itch and you're scratching it, there's a need. That's something different. That's permissible. Right? In fact, we could argue and say it's recommended. Why? Because if you don't scratch, what's going to happen? You lose focus. So if you have a slight itch on your arm, on your leg, if you don't scratch it, what's going to happen? You're going to sit there and you're going to focus and you're going to cringe and you're going to try and hope it goes away and you lose complete focus. It's actually better for you to just get it out of the way and just scratch it away and then focus properly on the salah. Understand? The importance here is about focusing on the, on the salah. Movements that is haram. There are certain movements in the salah that is haram. And that is, for example, when you move excessively, when you move so much without any reason that you nullify the salah, uh, that you walk or you turn in the opposite direction or you understand. So, what is considered, how do we actually define what, what breaks the salah? This is something that's a bit difficult because it doesn't, it's not mentioned in the hadith. So what we say is, this is, this goes back to custom. This goes back to, to custom. If you consider it customarily, this is considered too much movement, or a lot of movement, then we say it breaks the salah. Right? So if you, it's basically what, 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 what people would understand from, from it. So somebody who's, who's always fidgeting, right? Making salah, then he's playing with his head, then he's playing with something, then he's moving this around, then he's moving. This is not considered, this is unnecessary, but we wouldn't say it breaks the salah. But somebody can do some extreme movements in the salah. Like we said, he might just turn around and look to the back. And then focus on and come back to the salah. No, no. Customary, what would you consider that? Would you consider that broken? Would you consider that extreme? And completely unnecessary, too much? You understand? This is where the, the, the definition can be slightly um, difficult. Right? Uh, you in the salah, what happens? You, you, you push somebody next to you. You shove somebody. That, that's not a small movement. That's not just fidgeting. That's going beyond that level. You understand? Another example that some ulama mentioned is that if somebody were to see what you are doing, right, and they didn't know you were making salah, they would have thought that you're not making salah. If this is your movement, the movement is such that if somebody saw you and they thought this person not making salah, then this is the, the this is the the I this is basically the the definition of movement that breaks the salah. Is that understood? So if I were to look at the person and I see him pushing somebody, I would never expect him to be making salah. So in that case, that's a movement that breaks the salah. Understand? Or somebody's moving around, he's looking around, like keeps on looking and looking and looking. To me, that person is not making salah. If I look at him without knowing that he's in salah, to me, he's not, it doesn't look like he's in salah. That could be movement that breaks the salah completely. So that is haram movement. But the person that's fidgeting, you wouldn't say, you know, he's definitely not making salah and so forth. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. 
So there are five types of movements in salah. Some is wajib, some is recommended, some is just permissible, some is makruh, and some is haram, which nullifies one's um, salah. Question Ibn Taymi then brings up is, what if the imam does the excessive movements and he breaks the salah? Does, is everybody's salah broken or just his salah? Right? So the general rule is that if the imam breaks the salah for some reason, everybody else's salah is still valid. So if he breaks his wudu, for example, those behind him, the salah is valid. So if he walks away for no reason, he breaks the salah, Everybody else's salah is still valid. Somebody else just takes his place and he continues to complete the salah. Right? The only time the imam's salah becoming invalid makes everybody's salah invalid is when there's a black dog that goes in front of the imam. And we're going to get to that. Inshallah, we'll get to that issue of the sutra. Right? Of the covering in front. The black dog walks in front of you, the salah is broken. If this happens to the imam, the entire jama'ah salah is broken. But inshallah we'll get to that uh, in more detail. Another benefit of this hadith is it's permissible to bring children into the masjid. The Prophet had his granddaughter in the masjid. It's permissible to bring children in the masjid. But there should be a condition here and that is firstly, they don't bring dirt or najis or those type of things in the masjid. And secondly, they don't make too much noise by disturbing others in the masjid. So, if you know your child, this child sits still, then this is okay. Right? If you know your child is someone that doesn't sit still, it's just she or he is going to run around, scream, cry, then we say it's best not to bring the child to the masjid. It's best not to bring the child to the masjid until they get a little bit older. Or bring them there when there's not time for salah. You understand? But it makes no sense to bring a small child in the masjid and they disrupt the whole salah. You understand? This can be avoided, it should be avoided. Right? Parents should be taught this. Look, your child is not yet ready to sit still for 20 minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes. Just gonna sit there. That's the case, leave the child at home. When they're older, you bring them. And so forth. Um, but it's important, that's a very important issue. These two extremes, yeah, some people just open the door, just anybody in the masjid, any child, and make any noise. And the other extreme is people trying to throw children out the masjid. You know, they have no tolerance for the children in the masjid. That's also another extreme that we need to be careful of. You know, we should try and always be in the middle. Accommodate for them. If it's not going to work, we explain to the parents, bring them another day, bring them another time, and so forth. Allah knows best. Another benefit of the hadith is, permissible to carry a child in the masjid or in the salah if needed, right, if needed. So if your child's crying and you're in the salah, pick them up, right, no problem. Your child is, you know, not well and you have to make salah as a mother and they don't want to let go of you, they're being clingy, hold on to them and make salah. Understand? This is something important to remember. The next hadith from Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu that he said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said The Prophet said you should kill the two black ones in the salah The snake and the scorpion The snake and the scorpion Now, kill them in the salah Why did the Prophet say this? 
the general ruling is if a snake or a scorpion comes in it's permissible to or even if you just find them outside it's permissible to kill them because most likely they are harmful so you kill them the reason he mentions salah is that even if you are in a state of salah and you see one you should kill them understand so it doesn't mean that if so in salah look i can't kill him because i'm in salah I know I can normally kill them because they're dangerous, but because of in salah, I can't know. The Prophet is making it clear that even if you are in a state of salah and you see like a scorpion or a snake, you should kill them because of the harm that they obviously carry with them. And this applies to any animal that brings harm. Any dangerous, poisonous type of animal, if they come and you are making salah, it's permissible to kill them. It is permissible to kill them um, for your own safety. And the safety of those making salah around you um, and so forth, right? The one issues of the snakes, we know that there's a hadith of the man who came home, found his wife standing outside, a young wife, and he just got married, went to jihad. When he got there, the Prophet said, actually sent him back. He said, you just got married. Your focus is not in this jihad, go home. You were young, your wife is young, go home. When he got home, what, what happened? His wife was standing outside. And you know, Sahaba were very strict. And when he saw outside, he became angry, out of jealousy, protective jealousy. And he said to her, why are you outside in front of people? You're not supposed to be inside. And she said, go see what's inside. And when he went inside, what happened? There was a huge black snake on his bed. And what happened? He took his spear and he killed the snake. And as he killed the snake, they both died at the same time. The snake died and he died. When the story came back to the Prophet ﷺ, the explained that there was a jinn inside of the snake. That jinn, they can take different forms of any animal, especially black. The jinn love darkness. So black animals, black snakes, black dogs. Um, we don't say it's always a jinn, but it could be a jinn. And even a human form. You know, just this morning, Somebody asked me a question, brother's a revert brother, and he messaged me and he asked me a question and he said that my name used to be Dale, right? his, his Christian name used to be Dale. So he said somebody came to me the other day and he said to me, do you know Dale? And he said, no, I don't know Dale. And the person walked away. And he said to me, how is this possible? Did you ever hear something like this happening? I said, well, maybe it's a coincidence. Maybe he's, he knows you from before, you look a bit different. He asked you, do you know that person? He said, no. I was in working in the middle of nowhere, some engineer brother. So he was building some bridge in the middle of nowhere, up country, in a dorpy somewhere. And he says, a random black guy came up to me. As I was sitting in the car, and he said to me, do you know Dale? He says, I've never seen this guy, this guy's never seen me before. And the, I said no, and the guy walked away. And he said he was like shocked. So I said, it could be a gym. It's possible. It could have been a gym. Allah knows best. It's a possibility. Anyways, the issue of snakes coming into the house. If there's a snake in the house, you're supposed to instruct the snake to leave. Because it could possibly be a gym. And the nature of jinns is such that they are stubborn. And they like to take revenge. So if you do something that harms them or harms one of them, they take revenge on you and they can attack you in return. 
So when this person killed the snake, the Sahabi, the jinn retaliated. As he was being struck, he struck him back and he killed the Sahabi as well. So if a snake comes into the home, you are actually supposed to say to the snake, get out. And three times you should say to them, get out, get out. If it's a jinn, it will leave. If it's a jinn, it will leave. So jinn will understand. If it's not a jinn, you will know the snake won't understand you. Then you can kill the snake and you, and you should say Bismillah before you, 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 you strike. Because if it's a stubborn jinn, by you saying Bismillah, you are protected from him harming you back. If it's a snake, I will just say, just, just say, just say, get out, get out, get out. And this doesn't mean for three days. No? Some people say you must wait for three days. So every day you must say, get out. But that thing will kill you in the, in the next. You say, get out. If it doesn't move, you say, get out. If it doesn't move, you say, get out. If it doesn't move, you pick up the cricket bat there, or you pick up some sword or whatever, and you, you know, or you lock yourself up and you phone uh, the snake handlers and whatever. But you obviously take, take care and so forth. That's the last hadith in the chapter um, to end off the shurut of salah that we've mentioned or we should say that the shurut of salah is six. I think we only mentioned five. Right? The five that we mentioned is the timing of salah. The timing of salah has to be in. We've spoken about mawaqit of salah in detail in the beginning. Right? So that's the first condition. The time has to be in. You cannot make salah before the time. If you make before the time, your salah is batil. Secondly, satrul awrah. The awrah has to be covered. Your awrah has to be concealed and covered before you make the salah. Thirdly, two types of tahara. So three and four is both tahara. The one type of tahara is spiritual or ritual purity. Meaning you have to have wudu. You mean a ritual state that you are able to make salah. You need to have wudu or you need to take a ghusl, depending. Thirdly, it would be that you are clean and there's no najis, right? There must be no najis on three things. The place of salah, your body and your clothing. Those three things must be void of any impurities, right? So that's three and four. And number five would be facing the qibla. Facing the qibla, we've spoken about that in detail as well. The sixth one which we didn't mention is... One of the intentions, or sorry, I should say, one of the conditions that applies to any worship, and that is your intention, the niyyah. You must have a niyyah before you make salah. Your niyyah must be what, what's required for that salah. So as isha comes in, your niyyah must be to make isha. Understand? As maghrib comes in, your niyyah must be, you can't have the niyyah for maghrib and make isha, this doesn't work. Right? إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَّاتِ Actions are driven by his intentions and each person will only get what he intended. Your intention was maghrib, you are not going to get the reward of Isha and so forth. Right? And there is no added niyyah. So now, to usalli fardu salatu dhur arba'a raka'atin mustaqbila qiblati ada'an lillahi ta'ala. That's a bid'ah. The Prophet never ever added the niyyah ever. Now it was only Sunnah of Salat al-Maghribi raka'ataini ila akhirihi. It's a bid'ah. It should not be done. Your niyyah is always in your heart. The fact that you're standing on the musalla for Maghrib means your niyyah is to make Maghrib. The fact that you're making two raka'at after Maghrib is 
Your intention is to make the sunnah of Maghrib. There's no need for you to tell Allah what's in your heart. Allah already knows what your niyyah is. You don't need to utter anything to say, Oh Allah, my intention is this. But Allah knows what's in your heart. There's no need to, to, to say what your intention is. That's only what comes from the heart. That is the, the place of intention. The place of intention is the heart. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. There are three other conditions that some people might add on. But they're not restricted to salah either. That is Islam. You must be a Muslim for your salah to be accepted. A non-Muslim makes salah, it's not accepted. Secondly, bulugh. Right? It's that you are reached the age of, of understanding, of, of maturity. That you understand what you are doing. Right? And thirdly, is... What's the third one? You have to be sane. A person has to be sane. If a person is insane, there's no reason for him to do salah or any other act of worship. So zakah, hajj, fast, any worship, Islam has to be there, sanity has to be there, and that person must reach the age of understanding at least. And also the niyyah is for anyone. The others are restricted to salah. Following the qibla, tahara, two types of tahara, covering the awrah, and the timing of the salah must be in. Those are the conditions of salah. And Allah knows best. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik. Ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk.